Hello and welcome to another episode of the Manage Your Podcast. It is Sunday, June 7th. This is your host, Keon Sobani. Today's podcast comes in two parts. Part one is um, not entirely the post-game show for Atraf that we promised, but Matt Wiltsey joined me to talk about more of a general big picture um, podcast. Looking ahead to the game against Abar, talking about Real Madrid's training sessions, potential starting 11s, the upcoming schedule, the strength and schedule compared to Barcelona's upcoming schedule, um, and more general things. And then part two, um, it is Journalism Corner, the second edition of Journalism Corner, where I will talk 10 to 15 minutes about a particular subject to, uh, in response really to a lot of questions I get in my emails asking for journalism advice. So part one um, went up a couple of weeks ago, and the second installment of Journalism Corner is at the end of this podcast. So if you're interested in that, stick around beyond part one and um, and uh, see it out. It's uh, I talk about kind of things that maybe, maybe is not necessarily the status quo journalism advice, but just things based on my personal experience that you may may or may not find helpful, but hopefully find helpful. Also, managingmadrid.com, we got a lot of content. Um, Sam Sharp just put up his Real Madrid 2019-2020 Castilla season review. Of course, their season is over. Um, and I know the Castilla Corner crew did uh, finish their two-part series of the Castilla season review on the podcast form, but Sam Sharp, he has, Sam Sharp has also put out the uh, written form on managingmadrid.com. Uh, my column about the Real Madrid's return to the league and their need to slay lingering demons is also up on the site. Um, Churros y Tactica's podcast, Diego and I spoke on Friday about um, the post-Messi era and is it really exaggerated how bad Barcelona will fall. We had a whole discussion on that. That is also, you can see that on the homepage. And um, our resident physio, Jerry, has written about the potential injuries and the case that there's going to be an increase uh, in injuries at Real Madrid as we return um, just because of the time off and the lack of match fitness. So all that is on managingmadrid.com. And if you want access to all the midweek La Liga games that are coming up, make sure you're a patron because they're only going to be over at patreon.com slash managingmadrid. You can get access to mailbags, loan trackers. You can get guaranteed responses to your questions and access to the post-game shows. And there will be plenty a midweek post game games, post week games. So, uh, make sure you're a patron. Uh, all right. Without further ado, this is the Management Podcast, Part One with Matt Wilsey. Let's go. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. Uh, wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. All right, we're here with Matt Wiltsey, and I'm not entirely sure where to start other than the fact that this is just, it's like essentially a huge whiteboard and like a bunch of things on it, and we're just going to tackle tackle multiple different things because the league is starting in a few days, and Real Madrid plays in a few days, and we have some, you know, quick things from training we want to talk about. We want to talk about some predictions, some starting lineup things, and uh, obviously, this was the Atraf weekend. We didn't do a post-game show, but we are, we are going to touch on Atraf. Um, a nice performance, and let's be honest, uh, kind of inconsequential stuff in the Bundesliga these days. Hate to say it because Bayern have run away with it, but we'll continue to cover Atraf as much as we can moving forward until the season is over. Um, joining me, as always, of course, for this um, podcast is Matt Wiltsey. Matt, how you doing? Hey, Keon. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I was telling you off-air, I'm a little bit tired because I had uh, I was actually moving apartments the other yesterday. Still kind of in the process of that today. So if I'm a little incoherent or a little uh, off the mark, I apologize, listeners. But just uh, running on fumes right now. What's the move like during like a, a the streets crazy where you are? Like just a lot happening in between as you're trying uh, to transition everything into the new place. So I'm not downtown. Uh, downtown is like where. A lot of the protests are happening um, and where the curfews enforced and everything like that. But 
where I am, it's just completely quiet. So it, there's no problem there. It's just obviously uh, my fiance and I are a little paranoid about um, just we had movers come. We also had a guy uh, come over to help us um, mount some things. So just making sure we're wearing our masks. We didn't really want to be in contact with that many people, but you got to do what you got to do. Um, so we, yeah, move and moving, moving is stressful. I will, unless I absolutely have to, I think I've moved like a couple times, um, really in my adult life just because I, I, I don't like the process. Um, and so I always try to plan ahead in that regard, just thinking ahead, like, okay, where do I want to move to where I don't have to move again from this place in like five, 10 years at the minimum. Um, anyways, Real Madrid, (laughs) far more important. Um, where do you want to start? I was, I was, a lot of people, you know, are kind of, they are interested or at least intrigued in this, um, scrimmage that Real Madrid had this weekend where, you know, Zidane wanted to quote unquote recreate that, that first kind of match day experience. So he had a 11 on 11 full field, um, match at Valdebebas and he broke down the team in two different, two different teams. Uh, a lot of people saw it as like, uh, a team, B team, but I kind of just saw like a mishmash of trying to evenly distribute the talent. So, Team A, we had. Uh, Got to get to the right tab. So Team A was Courtois, Carvajal, Nacho, Varane, Mendy, Cruz, Modric, James, Asensio, Benzema, and Hazard. Uh, team B, which if you had to choose a team A, team B, I don't, I don't know if you could, but maybe like it was like it seemed like team B had a better defense, and team A had a better offense. But that's also debatable. So Areola, Lucas, Vasquez, the right back, Sergio Ramos, Militao, Marcelo, Casemiro, Valverde, Isco, Brahim, Rodrigo, and Vinicius, the four three three. Bale, um, sat out training. And Luka Jovic is not back yet. Um, yeah, and it seems like Rainier Jesus had one half with each team. So the obvious talking point is, are we supposed to reading, read anything into this or we just read nothing into it? I, th- I think you can take a little bit from it. I think um, I don't think it's a Team A and Team B. I, I, I do think it's a little bit of a mismatch because uh, obviously Sergio Ramos you would think he would be partnering Varane if there was a team A and a team B. Um, but I would say this. I think clearly Zidane wanted to get Benzema and Hazard together and make sure that their chemistry is still gelling. He added Asensio to that mix maybe to see that forward line. Um, yeah. I think you get a look at Lucas Vazquez at right back if he needs to play there. Um, I mean, it. I liked it, and I think it was interesting. He also gets the chance to see kind of those three young guys, Brahim, Rodrigo, and Vinicius, um, go up against a pretty formidable back line of Carvajal, Nacho, Varane, and Mendy. So uh, you get to see what those guys are capable of. And, I mean, I would pay to see this match. This would be this would be incredible to see. We've never actually seen a kind of a Real Madrid 11v11 game with this pretty evenly squad, uh, pretty even squad makeup. And just for our... For those who didn't see, the team that was consisted of Carvajal, Nacho Varane, Mende, Cruz, Benzema, Hazard, that team apparently won. Yeah, they they won. And, um, you know, I think, I do think the the points about wanting to see if how Benzema and Hazard can just get acclimated to each other again. We all know, like, I think we all assume, like, heading into this season that the chemistry between Benzema and Hazard would just work, just given the, the nature of how they, they play. And that was proven against PSG and, and a couple other games where you just kind of see their chemistry and the way they they sync up with each other, their touches. They know where each other are, where they can play close to each other. Um, but to kind of just maybe get that back into match rhythm, if you had an attack of James, Asensio, Benzema, and Hazard, James is obviously the outlier here. Like, I, I, can, I can see why Asensio would, would be an outlier, but I don't know. I just... There's definitely this sense that he seems like he's back. Um... And when Zidane was managing him, he was a prominent part of the team. So, you know, maybe he's he's ready. I mean, I'd be very shocked if he started the first game back against Abar, but, you know, who knows. But I think it was like, let's put together our attacking options and then give team, quote-unquote, team B, just a 
a, a few good defenders plus Casemiro and Valverde just so they don't fall apart defensively against Benzema, Hazard, Asensio, James, and Cruz and Modric is kind of the way I looked at it. But um, I, and this was yesterday, so I don't. There was another training today. I don't know if there were any updates. I didn't. I didn't check. I'd have to check to see if there's any updates today. But those those were my, I guess, takeaways too. So I I didn't. There were some people who were like, "Oh, does that mean Hamas is a star?" I don't think that's what it means. To be clear. Yeah, and I, I, I don't either. I mean, I'll be like you, Keon. I'll be shocked if Asensio starts. Uh, I do think he'll get minutes, and I do think he'll probably, hopefully, become an important sub if he can perform and stay healthy. But I'll just, I'd be shocked if he was part of that front three from the get-go. Um, but I think this is. I saw an article in Us, and it, they made a good point. Um, this is. This kind of final 11 games is almost, it's got a World Cup feel to it. And that's where um, the new fitness coach, DuPont, he thrived last year with, uh, he made waves with the French national team, the obvi- obviously the champions of the last World Cup. Uh, this is his bread and butter. So I think the team's going to be hopefully in tip top shape. This is kind of, this is where he can work his magic and hopefully get them into the best possible shape. Uh, for these eleven remaining games, they so the game against Avar is exactly one week away, literally to the minute that we're recording. Um, would be this would be during the game right now. Um, Avar is interesting because well, a they were they were one of the teams that were not as interested as coming back as some of the other teams, um, mainly because they live in a very small city and they're. They ha- they they're not their resources of w- in which they live are not as glamorous as some of the other big teams. Obviously, namely the the team they're facing on Sunday, which is Real Madrid. They live in smaller homes. They live with parents and grandparents. And this was a common theme. In uh, you know, obviously the most famous example was Cadiz, of of just not wanting to play, and that especially that one player um, who didn't want to come back. And some of these smaller teams, I think, ran into that issue. Um, so having said that. Everything's going to be back now. Uh, Sunday is the game. They also have a very, very important stretch of football coming up in their, I would say not only in the fate of their season, but possibly their entire club. Um, And the reason I say that is because they're actually not far away from relegation. And they have the, the three, four teams that are below them. They all have some kind of X factor in a sense of like, uh, of not going down. Espanol signed Raul de Tomas, although their, their results haven't been that great, but he's been great. Um, Leganes, I'm not sure what their X factor is. Actually, Leganes, you might make the case that losing Braithwaite and it's, it's just going to be tough for them. And Celta Vigo have the Aspas factor of we saw what happened last season. So it's just that, you know, they have a very tough, tough stretch and they're only two points off of relegation. So, if they go down, we know we've seen examples of clubs just going down, and then they either just don't come back up, or it takes them like a decade to do that. So they have a very they they have a lot to play for. Not that anyone in the league doesn't have anything to play for, but A bar is really in that they're not in the mid table limbo of teams that probably won't make Europa League and probably won't relegate, and they're just kind of on that treadmill. A bar is a bit is a bit tricky to play in your face first game back. Again, I don't think there's any excuses for Real Madrid to drop points. There shouldn't be, and I wrote an entire article about how there's no excuses now. But that's, I think it's a little bit of a, a tough one to start off with. And, I mean, one of our best games of the season, though, was against Abar earlier this year. Um, one of It was also one of Hazard's best games. So it'll be interesting to see if Zidane replicates the same tactics because you recall the team really pressed high in that game and then were lightning quick in their transitions. So um, I wonder if Zidane's maybe going to try and change the playbook a little bit because we know that's something he does in order to uh, um, outwit some of the other managers. He's even admitted that before prior to a Sevilla Copa del Rey match. So I'm curious to see if he goes in with the same tactics. But I also wanted to point out Hazard because apparently in training he's just – from all the reports we're hearing, is he's been at another level, and everyone in the dressing room has been blown away from him. So, uh, do you think? I mean, it looks like he's probably going to start. Do you? Do you think? Do you think so, Kia? Hundred percent, he will. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm not. 
I'm I'm really sure of that. I you know his timeline of coming back was um, supposed to be end of May during the after the initial diagnosis when he went down in February or, or I think it was February, right? Um, he was supposed to be yeah. back like late May, early June, but he was supposed to be like Roberto Martinez was like he's going to be back for sure, like he's going to be starting the first game of the Euro. So I'm not I'm not necessarily surprised. I might be. You can call me surprised in the fact that everyone's so blown away by his fitness. Like you can see. You can always tell with Hazard how in shape he is just by looking at his jawline, and his jawline looks really chiseled right now and sharp. So, <laughs> I think he's good to go. Um, you know, this I I I think I keep on banging on this drum, but whoever the starter is and whoever isn't five subs is just so many subs to me. Like it just feels like a lot, and everyone's going to play. Like everyone, like when you look at a bar as a bench. This is part of the reason why I keep harping on the no excuses thing. Five subs for Real Madrid and five subs for Abar are not the same. Five Abar subs are like, you know, Tejero, Pedro Bigas, De Blaises, Charles, maybe off the bench probably. I don't even know, if, you know, the health of some of these guys to be honest. But then you look at Real Madrid's bench, it's like, you're t- talking about like who's like Hamas is like barely in a discussion. Like I, so I just think like this is part of the reason why I think um, the no, you know, the the five subs things is so in favor of the bigger clubs. Um, although I I don't know if you saw. I'd be curious to ask you this question. Did you see what Setien said about the five subs thing? Yeah, I did. Um, what are you? What is your take on that? Do you think that it actually? I can see his point, but I'm I'm just curious to know. I how. think for a team like Barcelona, I, I do think it, it is a, a valid point uh, because obviously what they try to do is wear a team down through possession. And yes. as the game goes on, it's so much harder to make those, to stay disciplined, make those defensive runs, make that. I always had a coach that told me this this great line that I love. You, you run five yards now, so you don't have to run 15 yards later. And so... If you if you're not able to think that quickly and make those runs, then you're starting to make you're starting to have to make these extra runs to recover to try and catch up to your opponent. And so, uh, if you can sub guys out, like your whoever's having to make the most uh, defensive runs in a game, usually if you're playing like a four four two, it's going to be the wide with a deep block. It's going to be the wide midfielders or fullbacks. So if you can refresh those guys out, no, it definitely, I mean, I, I do think there's credence to what Setien said, and I do think it affects a team like Barcelona maybe a little bit more than Real Madrid. Um, but at the end of the day, I think when you can bring on, let's say Hazard can only go 60 minutes, 55 minutes, and you bring on Vinicius Jr., who's prior to the break was back to his best form, I mean, there, there's no question that, that that favors the bigger teams. And the further we go down, even if injuries start to hit, to your point, <laughs> injuries start to hit, and you have James Rodriguez, who's barely played this season, and he's still a guy who's got a wand of a left foot and can make a difference. He's actually one I hope gets a little bit more relevant role with this five-substitute rule. Though I, I think it's going to be important, too, that Real Madrid puts teams away. So hope I think they need to be clinical and they need to get the job done early. That way Zidane has no hesitations in using all five subs and getting guys rest. One of the uh, one of the things interesting things that I I know you're not an NBA guy, but one of the things that was interesting from previous NBA lockouts is that teams who are older um, tend to come back from lockouts lockout seasons a little bit more labored, and they just don't necessarily have the because. Part of the reason is because the schedule gets really condensed, right? So all of a sudden you're playing a lot. And this league schedule is really condensed. I mean, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, juggle everything for the loan tracker. And when we usually record our loan trackers Tuesdays, there's already some loanees playing again on that same Tuesday from the ones that have already played on the weekend. So that's how condensed it is. So one of the themes from the NBA lockout season is like some of the older teams will come back a little bit, a little bit more, um, leg heavy, uh, especially once you start piling up all those games. And the younger teams, um, they don't really have that problem. So this is 
another reason why like five subs and, and again Real Madrid's five subs. You look at Team B in this training thing: Brahim, Rodrigo, Vinicius, Valverde. Um, you know these are all guys with pretty fresh legs, so um, I think that's another thing to uh, that really, really, really hinders the smaller teams from being able to compete with, especially like some something like Abar that you know Kike and Sergi Enrique, those two big behemoths, and like you know they're not that young, and I you know it's going to be tough, tough for them. And I mean, it will also be interesting to see how the break affects someone like Benzema because obviously he was starting to cool off after his really hot season start to the season uh, and finish to last season. His, the goal scoring started to cool off, so maybe this break will actually favor him. Um, even Casemiro, because yes, Casemiro has been our best player this season so far, but I think if he continued to play at the rate he was playing at, he probably would have... Um, succumb to injury or if he would have been close to burnout by the start of next season so this break actually may have helped guys like that who were getting close to that 3,500 minute threshold the two two players who started off both this season and last season in really good form were Benzema and Bale um in Bale's case both this season and last season it that form lasted like a few games and uh in Benzema's case, he also cooled down a little bit both seasons. But um, so maybe you just need to keep restarting the season every time for to reset Bale. But um, <laughs> you know, so it's a it's a point worth I guess keeping an eye on. Um, low knee games, right off the bat, we have Odegaard versus Osasuna, Kubo versus Barcelona, Barca. big one. Regulon versus Sevilla, another or Betis, another big one, and then Oscar plays against uh, Bayadolid, who might as well not That's have any a big game. game. It is, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a relegation battle, yeah. Yeah, um, but I mean, if we look at the speaking of the schedule, if we look at the schedule, if you go down to June twenty first, I think it's our third game back from the break. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a defining weekend. Sevilla, Barcelona are away to Sevilla, and Real Madrid are away to uh, Sociedad. So mm-hmm. Real Sociedad. I obviously, I think we've seen from the Bundesliga that the away um, playing at home doesn't really make a significant impact anymore, uh, which I think actually plays to Barcelona's favor because I think they had the harder away schedule. Um, but I think that will be a defining weekend. Uh, that's where points could be dropped by either team. That's a big one. Um, there seems to be... I, I've heard contrasting opinions regarding this, like who has a tougher schedule. Um, some people think it's Barcelona. Some people think it's Real Madrid. Um, where, do you, where do you stand? Have you looked at both schedules to see? Yeah, initially, I mean, prior to, because um, I looked at it like right after the Classico, and prior to, um, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic in the break, um, I thought Barcelona had the harder schedule because I thought they had tougher away trips. They had a trip to Sevilla and I believe a trip to um, the Wanda. So I thought with those two big games on the horizon, with a couple more away trips, I felt like they could drop points. Um, now, given that from what we've seen in the Bundesliga and now that the, the atmosphere, the 12th man's taken away, I really think it, it favors Barcelona. I think, I mean, the, the home and away thing and not having fans to me cancels each other out because, like, for example, um, their trip to Sevilla historically that's a really really tough game for them like really really tough um mostly because of the the fans like obviously if you if you look at Sevilla and how they play at the Sanchez Pijuan versus how they play at the Camp Nou at the Pijuan it's like they're just like they look like the superior team sometimes and then Messi has to bail them out at the Camp Nou it looks like they're like a third division team in a shell terrified and so then, obviously, losing that will be huge, um, losing that fan base. On the flip side, you, you look at Barcelona hosting Atletico on July 1st. 
Atletico also on the same boat where uh, at the at the Calderon or the Wanda, they're just way better at, versus Barcelona than they when they go to the Camp Nou. Now Atletico go to an empty Camp Nou, um, so that's a huge bonus. So I think it cancels it out. I think once you kind of stack it up against each other, um, Real Madrid. There's a part of me that actually feels that out of Barcelona and Real Madrid, Barcelona's going to miss the home advantage a little bit more. Mostly because Real Madrid at home is kind of just, over the past few years, it hasn't really been that that fortress at the Bernabeu where, you know. And also, like, not having the fans pressure sometimes just kind of helps them, I think, mentally. Um, the flip side is that Barcelona away this season have been terrible. So this that also benefits. So that's why I think, like, it just kind of cancels each other out no matter how you look at it. But the strength of schedule... Um, there's two games for Real Madrid, three games, sorry, that I actually I really don't like, and they're actually very close to each other. So Real Madrid Valencia, we know what that that is against Valencia. Real Madrid versus Sociedad, really tough. Uh, and the third one is against Getafe, and Bordalas, I think you know he always just finds a way to like get grind out points. So those are the three that stick out to me. Is there is there another one? The Villarreal one I think is a little bit tough. Um. Mostly because I think on their day they have enough attacking threat to beat anybody, and I just completely ignore Athletic Club, which is another tough game. So that's five actually. That's five <laughs> games that I look at and be like, you know, I could. While I would be disappointed that Real Madrid would drop points in, I would, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if that happens. So Barcelona, I think they have one, two, three, four. You know, I'd say four games really that I think that they they could be worried about. Um, I think Barcelona's schedule is a little bit easier, but but again, well, and I, I don't know. I think the circumstances too of like where that team is and at what point in the season the games played. Because um, if a team's middle of the table, like we have a good run near the final two weeks where we play uh, Granada and then we play uh, where's Alaves, and both of them look like they'll be safe kind of mid-table. So, yeah, those, game, those games will probably should be okay for Real Madrid. But then the final game of the season is against Leganes. And if they are a point away from um, salvation and staying up, then that could turn out to be one of the toughest games of the season. So I think that perspective, it always comes with kind of the circumstance of the moment. And there we have a couple games against relegate. We have... Espanol and Mallorca still to play as well. So those guys are going to be fighting tooth and nail to make yeah. sure that they stay up. So those will be tough games too. I mean, you really can't, except for the mid-table sides, I feel like you can't really write anyone off. Um, it also looks like Messi's back in training now. I know like a few Madridistas were like, we're starting to see if they, they should factor that in if he misses Mallorca. But I think, uh, I, I doubt he would uh, miss any significant amount of time. And I hope he doesn't. Um Where should we go from here? Um, well, one thing I was I sh- shot over to you over Slack, which I, I don't think has been talked about much. Um, I, don't, I don't think we've had any patient questions either. Is there hasn't been much talk about Sergio Ramos's renewal? I mean, he's still he's still he's got his contract expires in 2021. The club want to give him a one year deal. He wants a two year deal at least. Um, and they're they're trying not to budge on that. I mean, honestly, if he's performing the way he is, if he's as fit as he is today, he Zidane. Everyone knows how influential he is as a leader. I mean, we got it, and everything he's done for the club. We, I feel like there's there's an exception that can be made for Sergio Ramos. He doesn't. He's maybe the youngest 34 I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, Ronaldo, thirty-four, is is a young thirty-four too. But I mean, but I think both of them. But like, this goes back to Ancelotti, who said a while ago, years ago, when he was coaching Real Madrid, that there are two players who like are an exception to the rule when it comes to like players needing rest, and that is Ramos and Ronaldo, who just don't really need it like other players do, because they're just such physical freaks. Um, again, like thirty-four. When you tell me Ramos is thirty-four, I know he's thirty-four, but he's not really thirty-four. If that makes sense. So. You know, I'm not, I'm not like, I don't see his decline the way I see Modric's decline. Let's put it that way. 
Yeah, I mean, he recently, I mean, I'm sure everyone saw it, that photo he put up of himself shirtless recently. I mean, he gives Ronaldo a run for his money. The guy is unbelievably ripped, looks in better shape than 99% of the team. So I don't think right now, like, you're worried about him being 34, turning 35. He, he can keep it going. I mean, he's, yes, there's been some signs of decline, but more or less it's been just the kind of normal Ramos inconsistency. I don't think he's dramatically tailed off like a guy like Marcelo has. Let's take a, a couple of patron questions and then we'll we'll circle back to some loan stuff. Um, Leon Savernakis says, assume for a moment you agree with me that this is our ba- best attacking quartet and our best defensive backline. What deep midfield duo would you go with and why? No sacred cows, just analysis, please. So the team is uh, Thibaut Courtois, Ramos, Varane, Carvajal, Mendy, those are the, that's the back line. And then the front line is Bale, Asensio, Hazard, Benzema, those four. So he's asking if this is the best defensive line, this is the best offensive line, then what would the double pivot be in this situation? For me, um, I would go with Tony Cruz and Casemiro. I think, obviously, you would, you're going to hope that Cruz doesn't get uh, found out in transition and that he can stay disciplined with his defensive duties. But I think you need... I'm picking Cruz over Fede Valverde just because I think you need him uh, for the build-up play and for building out of the back and just having a press, a more press-resistant defensive midfielder in that in that pivot. So that would be my two. But I did think hard about, hey, what if you just go with a Fede-Casemiro double pivot there? Cruz has looked good in a double pivot before. Um, I think part of him is also, like, it really depends on the opponent and how much they're pressing you and how much they're going to punish you in transition, how high your line is. I think if you're if that's your double pivot, Case and Cruz, which is, generally speaking, I think that is your double pivot. I mean, if you had to pick only two. But, um, you know, that also requires the front four to make sure the team teams don't escape the final third. So a lot of cohesive pressing is needed. And probably a lot of tracking from Bale too, and even Hazard. So that would work. I think, you know, generally speaking, I've, I've always liked the double pivot for Real Madrid. I think it always looks good, and Kroos has looked good in it. I think Casemiro Fetty would work. I think, any to be quite honest, I think any combination of those four would probably work. Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't be too worried about who, like, it, I, and I think it has less to do with who was the attack and who was the defense. But um, you could, if you if you wanted to squeeze in your four best attacking players, regardless of who we are, of who they are, and regardless of if we agree that those are the four that um, Leon has proposed, the mishmash of that Real Madrid has in central midfield is actually pretty. Pretty good. You can you can put any combination of those four as you tell and I think it would work. Uh, there's a question from Varun. He wants to know how we felt during the three peat finals individually, um, and any memories of them to share. This actually the three peat thing. Like Lucas and I have talked pretty extensively about like how we felt about each one. But if you were to rank, you want if you want you can rank them, Matt. Do you want to rank them in terms Was of like, he how asking- you felt? Is he asking to rank them, or is he asking like, what, what, where were we, what were we doing, type of thing? Why don't you do both? Why don't you go through all three and then rank them? Okay. Um, God, it's it's so tough to rank them. Um, I probably put the uh, Juventus win at number one, the Undecima at number two, and uh, the Liverpool win at number three, and. I think for me, more so than anything, obviously the three-peat was historic, so it kills me to put that third. But I think for me, I'm thinking back to kind of my experiences watching those games. And for the the Juventus win, I was actually, I lived in New York City prior to moving to Dallas. And so I was at the Pena, I was with the Pena in New York City, and bar was packed. It was unbelievable. I mean, every time, it it was our best performance of all the Champions League victories. It was just, the feel-good moment was unbelievable. Uh, I remember when I was walking out, someone went up to me and said, 
you're going to tell your grandpa your grandkids about this and I just smiled cuz I was like he's right he's right and it was such a such a good moment such a good feeling and just being with all those madridistas after Casemiro scores Ronaldo scores and just going nuts it was it was great and I typically like to watch the games Keon, uh, we've talked about this alone um, but this was I wouldn't trade it for the world on this one it was so fun to be there um, and then the undecima um, that one I have funny memories just because I, I was watching that one alone with my fiance and uh, she has a video of me after uh, Ronaldo scored I was screaming leapt off the couch and ripped my shirt off just like him and did the Ronaldo flex so it was it was hilarious and she put that in slow-mo and then um, the Liverpool final I don't know I don't know what it was I mean obviously it's just it was historic it was truly historic but I think the overall game for me just wasn't as good so I think that's why I kind of ranked it last it's interesting. Uh, you and Lucas both have Undecima a little bit higher than I did. And I don't know why, for, for whatever reason, uh, I just it didn't resonate with me nearly as much as the other two. But Undecima, I was watching the penalty show with my dad. It was, it was fun. I mean, watching any game with my dad is fun. And I don't get to do that as much as I used to. Um, and for, for part of it is just part of the reason I think it maybe didn't it wasn't as exciting for me. It was exciting. Obviously, it was, it was ecstatic that we beat Atletico in the Champions League final in the penalty shootout. But I don't know. There was something about it that, like, you know, two years ago, I just felt like nothing would ever reach decimal level of happiness. And then I was just like, so, and, and we had yeah. already won that after 12 years. So we kind of got the monkey off our back that I felt oddly relaxed even during the penalty, shoot, penalty shootout. And I mentioned this before that when Ronaldo was taking that penalty kick, I just kind of knew he it was gonna he was gonna score. Like there wasn't like a one percent chance of him missing. Um, that's the way I felt anyway. So I wasn't nervous about it at all. Even even like watching all those all the Real Madrid players, I think they they absolutely just destroyed Atleti in the penalty shootout. Right? Like it, yep. if it was really close in regulation, the penalty shootout was not close. It was a d- massacre, and All Black was paralyzed for half of it. And all the Atleti players, when they stepped up to take those penalties, it looked like they were all going to miss because they were so scared of the moment. And yeah. then, but the 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 Juve one was number one to me out of the three, Pete. Just, I felt much more tense in that one. Juve at the time was the best defensive team Real Madrid had faced all season. And um, when Mandzukic scored that free goal, I was... I was definitely, I was definitely feeling nerves, but when Casemiro scored, I, f- I was, I was so excited, and then obviously the way it ended, it was really fun. And then Kiev was, Kiev was number two to me out of the three. Peter, I thought Kiev, like the Bale goal, I, I was just going bonkers when Bale scored that, and um, so I'd, I'd have that one. So one is Juve, two Liverpool, three is Atleti, is the way I have it ranked. Um. And that, that where where we were at the time and stuff, um, bail the bail bicycle kick. I just remember Luca was really really little at the time, my son, um, and I scared the shit out of him because I went <laughs> so berserk when Bale scored that he just burst out crying and I it so it was like this weird thing and then, and then <laughs> so then I, I held him and I hugged him and I, I was like jumping with him and then he started laughing so I, I remember that fondly um, loan stuff I just want to circle back to this for a second Atraf against Hertha Berlin was kind of routine I mean Dortmund it wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't like a, a runaway win, but it was a pretty comfortable win, and Hertha Berlin didn't do anything. I think they only had one shot inside the box. The rest of them, they had, and then they had three shots outside the box, really tame. Um, Atraf was really good. I, I enjoyed his performance. I think, um, obviously, I would have preferred if all these these really good performances from Atraf and Dortmund were to also prevent present themselves um, against Bayern, and we could talk. We could have talked positively against. Uh, about the performance against Bayern too, but ultimately I think this one was pretty comfortable for Dortmund. Um, they didn't like in the first half; they didn't have much going for them, and the only thing that really gave Hertha problems were like if Sancho was dribbling through multiple players or if Atraf was doing his one-two. One thing that Atraf has been doing a lot of this this 
since returning from quarantine, and especially this game against Hertha. It's essentially just get the ball, pass it as quickly as possible. If it's one touch pass, then ideal. If not, take two touches, vertical pass, sprint into the space. He was doing that over and over again. Um, a couple of nice interceptions. Um, wasn't as press resistant as he normally can be. Uh, lost the ball a couple times in deep position positions, but um, caught out defensively once. Lucky that Witzel made a crucial intercep- interception. His deliveries were pretty good. Um, so pretty good performance from him. Um, and uh, I don't know if you have anything to add, uh, Matt. If not, um, the other thing I wanted to also... Well, do you have anything to add? I should, I should just the only the the only thing I would say is it is it kind of does feel like now all his performances, regardless of how great they are, it, there's always going to be kind of this yeah but and yeah but he didn't do it against Bayern Munich, which is disappointing because uh, there's still plenty to take from those performances, and you could almost call that that Bayern game a one off. I mean. Hans Hansi Flick got it got it right. He got the formation right. He got the system right. He obviously targeted the wingbacks. So I I feel like almost too much emphasis has been put on the Byron on the Byron game. But that's it's just Ashraf's just got to continue to play well in the in the remaining matches. Well, his track record in big games is kind of is kind of mixed because he has the inter game where the team desperately needed him and he and he was amazing in that game. Uh, he's also had some last season. Yeah, Lecky Hadrick. Yeah, I thought. Oh, that's another one. Yeah. Um, so his big game performances have been either that, like spectacular, or he's had like the Tottenham last season was just really bad. Cup yeah. final last season was really bad. Bayern, Bayern this season wasn't bad. It's. Uh, I don't think we should get it twisted and say it was bad. It's yeah. just that he didn't really shine, and and Alfonso Davies definitely had the better performance of the two. Um. Aguasil t- said today that Odegaard is, seems to be happy there. I mean, we're not surprised he said that. I think, you know, obviously he, he's he been pretty vocal about being happy and who wouldn't be? I mean, he's a starting and and, and starting at one of the best teams in Spain and he's in San Sebastian and he's probably going to get Champions League football next season, although that, you know, that may or may not happen. If all that does happen, and Aguasil kind of confirmed it, like, I you know I think it's it's a good chance he might stay at Sociedad next season. Yeah, I mean I, I mentioned on our other pod I, I think it's probably sixty five thirty five if not seventy thirty that he stays at Real Sociedad next season. Um, I liked what Agosil said. I mean he said, and obviously he's going to say this, um, but it, it's still. I mean I still think there's some credence to it. Is that he said obviously. Another year at Sociedad will prepare Odegaard uh, to take that next step. He'll be fully prepared to take that next step. And I, I mean, I don't disagree with that, uh, though I do think he's already ready to take that next step. I think he's been ready. Uh, even after Vitesse last year, we were just drooling over his performances. So it's it remains to be seen. I think, uh, I, Kian, I do think a big deciding factor will be where Sociedad end up in the table. If they end up in Champions League, I I don't think there's any way he's... I think he's going to really want to stay, and Real Madrid will probably be all right with that. Yeah, the Champions League, Champions League thing is definitely a, uh, a big factor in this, because if, if he's in the Champions League next season, if I'm Real Madrid, and if I had the choice between playing him sporadically or getting him in the Champions League regularly, then I, I'd lean towards the Champions League. But So I agree with both I agree with Aguasil, but I also agree with the fact that he's ready now. I agree that he's ready now, but I also agree with Aguasil that um I don't know necessarily that he he will be more ready than a year, but it's also hard to argue with his logic in that, you know, if he's playing regularly for one more year, it makes more sense because then you have one more year for Modric to, to get phased out. Um and hopefully Real Madrid don't sign anybody. I mean, you know, um, you and I were talking about Van de Beek off on Slack. And I'm kind of glad his name hasn't been surfaced much. And because it doesn't make sense. Like, he's just, he's in the way of, he's a really, really good player. Don't get it twisted. He's great. I just, he's in the way of so much young talent at this stage. You know, if he's not, and he's not Mbappe. He's not that sweet spot where, 
you know, he's a superstar that you you justifies kind of stalling the development you have with the young players. But he's also not good enough where it makes sense to kind of, you know, let him fight with Odegaard and and all these players. So, um, I, I completely agree. I mean, especially to shell out if it's uh, uh, reportedly the fee prior to COVID nineteen was fifty five million or around that to shell that out when you can kind of put that investment elsewhere and positions that maybe are more needed. I, I completely agree. I mean, why, why bring in a guy that could take playing time from Odegaard or take playing time from Fede Valverde or whoever else, Brahim. Um, so it, it, I'm with you there, Kian. And I think it's just, it's just so weird because it, it, it reminds me of the Ezekiel Palacios deal. I mean, everything seemed like it was signed, sealed, delivered. He's coming. No worry. Like, then it was put off for a year, and then during throughout this whole year, he still said basically he's coming. Um, there was even a report more recently from a Dutch outlet Voteball, who said um, Zidane called him, which I don't know. Not not many other outlets picked up on that, so I don't know if there's much um, truth to that report. But yeah, I just it, it's just so strange when you you. It seems like these deals are done and dusted, signed, sealed, and delivered, and then all of a sudden it's 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 done. That's where it goes to show you—you you never know until that contract is signed. Um, I think we wrap it up here, Matt. I don't know if um, there's anything else that's pressing. So we have a bar coming up next Sunday. Obviously, that's the post-game show, and then this week on Patreon, Patreon we have a show on Tuesday. We have a show on Thursday. If you want access to those, go to Patreon.com/slash/ManagingMadrid. And yeah, that's all we got. And then, uh, then really after that, basically starting Thursday once Regulon plays his first game, and then for the rest of the summer, we're we're just um, consumed and buried under content. And if you want access to all of it, make sure you're on Patreon.com/slash/ManagingMadrid. There are going to be a ton of weekend or weekday games that will only appear on Patreon. So make sure you have access to that. Uh, Matt, this was fun. Uh, enjoyed it. Till next time, Hanamari. Hanamari. Welcome to Journalism Corner. This is the second time we're running the segment. Um, the first one appeared two weeks ago, and we got a lot of positive feedback. So we're going again, and we're going to make this a regular thing. I'm going to start off this one by reading an email from um, a listener. The email reads, Hi, Kian. Love the Journalism Corner part on the Managing Major podcast. You said something to let you know about future topics. One thing I'd like to mention is the process of asking the right questions when I'm interviewing someone in a podcast. I'd be grateful if you can share your expert opinion regarding this in one of the next episodes. I got you. So let me just say something right off the bat. It actually, it's less about what you're asking and, and more about how you're asking it. The delivery and the, your ability to carry a conversation is far more important than the actual question you ask. Um, and this this kind of ties into what I said two weeks ago on Journalism Corner in that I mentioned briefly in that segment that you know we don't we don't have any scripts or any really pre pre-planned things when we talking when we're talking on the podcast. And we're able to go on the podcast and talk for hours and hours and hours and hours if we wanted to. And that's not an exaggeration. Literally, you see us, you'll often see this podcast, each segment going for an hour. Um, and we released, and I think our longest episode ever we released was a few weeks ago where we released a three-hour episode, three-hour-plus episode on Patreon where one, it was in three parts. One part was me, Matt, and Om. Another part was Cassia Corner. They do their own thing. They're experts, by the way, at being able to carry a conversation um, effortlessly. And then we had a third segment. I can't remember what it was. And we actually pretty forcefully cut it off every time. Um, you'll notice You'll notice at the end of each episode, we we could probably keep going if you just kind of read the read between the lines and kind of how we're carrying the conversation. And like I said, I mean, this this particular episode is actually a good example of that. At the top of the show, I, I mentioned that um, Matt and I basically had a whiteboard of topics we were going to talk about, but we didn't we didn't really have a script or a pre-planned program. Like, you know, we, we all come to the table knowing that we've all done our homework. We all come to the table expecting a very high standard from each other, which we hold ourselves account- accountable to. 
We all expect to know everything there is to possibly know about Real Madrid. We all expect each other to do our homework, to keep up on the news with regards to the club. So we all come prepared, and then we are able to just kind of talk and talk and talk and provide different takes and kind of have a conversation like we would in a bar. It's much the same way when you're interviewing someone. Um, the best interviewers in the world can go into an interview and ask questions effortlessly based on just having a conversation with them. Um, don't get me wrong. It's not a bad idea to have a set of questions to fall back on. But it's very similar to like, you know, going to a dinner party with your friends or going to a dinner party to meet new people. Do you go into that dinner party, you know, thinking on your way there, okay, I'm going to ask this person that. If I ask this type of, if I meet this type of person, I'm going to ask him this. No, you just kind of, you got to be present to the moment. The one thing that uh, I'm sure you've realized is that if you're talking to somebody and while they're speaking, you're instead of listening to what they're saying, not just hearing, like actually listening to what they're saying, you're thinking about what to ask them next. You can probably sense, and, and the other person can probably sense it too, that the energy in the conversation has just kind of faded away. And people can sense that, you can sense it, the, the, the guests can sense it. You don't want to be thinking about what you're going to ask next when somebody is talking. You want to be present to the moment. And you want to be able to listen to what they're saying and be able to feed off of it and then respond to what they're saying. Um, and you're not going to be present to the moment if you have a list of questions. So when I say it's more about how you ask a question more than what you ask, it's very, very similar to, let's say, if you're describing something very mundane, okay? If you, if, if you have one story, but you're, you have two versions of telling it, then it's far more um, captivating if you put some emotion behind it, right? So let's say, um, same scenario, two different stories. Story one, I got out of bed today. I went to work. I came home. I went to sleep. Story number two, last night before I went to bed, I had this whole day mapped out. I was going to wake up. I was going to meditate. I was going to do this all before sunrise. I was going to run to the lake and I was going to do my meditation at the lake while the sun was rising. I wanted to get maximum inspiration and I did this. I put some headphones on. I ran to the lake. I got a bunch of energy, spiritual energy, physical energy, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what it was, but a, just a, a lightning bolt of inspiration hit me when I woke up. And then I was able to go to work with the right mindset. I killed it at my job. I crushed all my tasks. I crushed all my goals. And I had so much energy that I came home and I cooked a healthy meal. I went to the gym. I did a workout. And I had the most productive day ever. And I decided that I was going to do this, continue this momentum every single day of my life. Um, or at least try to for the next week or so and then see where it takes me. All I know is I had a productive day because I mapped it out the night before. And I'm going to do it again tonight and wake up tomorrow and have a spiritually enriching day and provide value to people and try to... Um, and try to learn from others. So that's literally the two two different ways of telling the same thing. You could say, I woke up, I went to work, I went to bed. and Or you could say it the latter. I mean, you may or may not have found it interesting, but at least you could admit that um, at least it hooks you in a little bit more, right? So when I say it more, matters more what the, how you ask the question, how the conversation is going, than to ask the right questions, that's kind of what I mean. Um the greatest interviewers in the world, and they've often talked about this. Um, Joe Rogan's talked about it. Um, Bill Simmons has talked about it. That you know they have in their subconscious, they kind of know what they're gonna ask, like to fall back on. But that's more of like just talking points in within the flow of the conversation, rather than okay, I'm gonna ask the player this, I'm gonna ask the guest this, and then bang, 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 FAQ, twenty questions. Um, you can listen to it here or you could probably just Google it on Wiki and see the answers on Wikipedia. So, but I guess in terms of, I, I, I know you would find it helpful a little bit to, for me to actually explain some of the questions and some of the methods that I, that I use. Um, think about like, what would you find interesting, like genuinely and sincerely? Um, there are definitely podcasts when I'm listening to them where in my head I'm like, oh, please ask them this. Like, I would really love to know what the answer is here. I'm sure, likewise, if you're, answer if you're listening to us or any other podcast and 
you hear something within the conversation and you're like, man, please ask him this. Or like, I would really love to know the answer to this. There are, I'm sure there are times where you're driving, listening to us and you're thinking to yourself, you're, you're driving your hair, your hair out of your skull because you're frustrated at me for not pointing something out or asking something. Um, and you want to know the answer to it. So what would be that thing that you're interested in? Think of it that way. Um, and just kind of go from there. So I, I can tell you what I'm generally interested in. So, for example, when I interviewed Jeremy, the former Real Madrid player, a few weeks ago, I didn't want to ask questions that things that would, I would be able to find online, right? Anyone listening to that conversation could have looked up the fact that, you know, he played for Real Madrid for X amount of years. He, what nationality he's from, what, what, um, what area of Cameroon he was, he was growing up in. Um, how many games he played for Real Madrid, how many minutes he played for Real Madrid, how many goals he scored, who he scored against. That's, those aren't the questions I'm looking for, right? I'm very, personally, I'm very interested to get the story behind certain moments and how they were feeling because no one can really know or look that up. And that's the value that I, I personally would love to know just to learn from them a little bit. I go into every com- every podcast trying to learn when I have guests like that who I know are going to monopolize the mo- the microphone a little bit more uh, on those particular episodes. So I wanted to know, for example, when Jeremy came on in the second half against Manchester United in the 2000 Champions League quarterfinals, Real Madrid were up 3 nothing, but then they conceded two goals. They were up 3-2 on aggregate. Um, and Manchester United had gotten all this momentum. They were making a surge. And Jeremy has to come on the field in that moment in one of the most iconic and important games of Real Madrid history. And he has to pres- help Real Madrid preserve a lead. And he comes on, I think it was for Steve McManaman, but don't quote me on that. I don't remember now. It's off, off the top of my head. So I, was, I, I asked him, like, Jeremy, like, do, what do you remember from that moment? What did Del Bosque tell you from, like, to do from a tactical perspective? What are the changes that you wanted, he wanted you to make on the field? Like, what is your role? What is going through your mind? when you're coming on the field in that pivotal moment. And, um, you know, the answer was really cool. He was talking about how, like, Del Bosque told him, you know, Jeremy, I know that, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, basically just the idea, like, Jeremy, I know that you're an incredibly hardworking and defensively sound player. I just, you have one goal in this game to defend. And he was kind of just talking about, like, his mindset and what was happening in that moment. So those are the questions I'm particularly interested in. I can't tell you, I can't dictate to you and say, ask this question, ask that question, because to me, that would be an irresponsible advice because everyone finds different things interesting. I can only ask what I personally find interesting. And my best advice is to ask things that a listener or a guest wouldn't normally know about said guest or just the context of anything, Um, whether it's someone high profile or if it's even something as simple as breaking down a game and tactical performance. Um after a game which everyone's watching, everybody knows the scoreline, by the way, um, what can I ask in that moment, that post game, that will maybe kind of expand the way we think about this game and, and, and make us look at the game a certain way? Can I provide as much nuance to this as possible that people can't get the information for online? Um, the best example I can give in like the importance of more so the storytelling part of the content, more so than the content itself, is The Last Dance. I'm sure like there's a lot of you listening to this who have watched that documentary. A lot of people already knew everything that happened to it. You know, there are there are basketball fans who grew up in the 90s watching all those games. They knew all those stories about Rodman disappearing or um, or Scotty, you know, refusing to go into games, Scotty being underpaid. A lot of us knew those stories. I'm not I didn't know all of it. I, I learned a lot. But but my point is a lot of people knew everything from start to finish. They knew everything in that documentary. But, you know, it was more more than a history lesson. It was a story. Like that documentary, regardless of if you knew the information or not, hooked you in and sucked you in from start to finish because everything from the music to the interviews to um, the emotion behind it, the way the story was told was more captivating than the content itself. Um, so that's my point. It's sometimes it's less about asking the right questions because any question can be right if you execute it properly and your delivery is good. So you got to be confident and to be confident on a podcast, it goes back to what I said on um, the first segment two weeks ago and I won't rehash it here, but go listen to it if you haven't already. And by the way, I've been trimming, I'm going to be trimming these clips 
from Journalism Corner and posting them on social media on YouTube. So the first segment is up on my personal Instagram at Keon. So it's also on my YouTube channel, Keon Sobani. It's, you know, obviously you can just listen to it on the podcast too in your RSS feed. It's up to you, whatever platform you want to consume it on. But I will post them a little bit delayed, maybe like a week or so uh, delayed if you're interested in just having them there and finding them all in one place. So again, hope you found this helpful. I always try to answer these questions with a little bit of a different flavor than what you might hear in the mainstream, uh, what what they might tell you in the mainstream, at least uh, with regards to succeeding as a journalist. I think a lot of a lot of my experiences is um, a little bit more kind of hands-on and outside the box in terms of like what actually works. So uh, feel free to reach out to me if there's any specific topic you'd like me to touch on in Journalism Corner. My email is keon at keonsubani.com. And again, hope you found this helpful. And uh, we will do this again next week. Take care.